0: two sisters work tirely to try and keep their brother alive. The sickness is new, but it's moving quickly. They send word to a doctor, knowing that he could save him. And yet, as they blot sweat from his brow and hold his hands amidst his writhing, The end seems inevitable. Days pass, and the brother dies. Questions start God, where were you? Where are you? How could you let this happen? We turn to such a story this morning in John chapter 11 when these very questions are present in the mouths of Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, who Jesus allows to die. This is a story of love and of death and of the glory of God. And there are two great truths in this chapter. One is in Jesus' announcement I am the resurrection and the life. The one who trusts in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Indeed, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And the second thing we see in this chapter is that God produces glory from suffering. And that's our main idea together this morning. What we want to see as we're coming to this text is that God redeems suffering. This is, of course, going to be the seventh sign of Jesus, because you probably know that he doesn't just let Lazarus die. He raises him back to life. And this sign is to facilitate belief in those who see it. And so as we Walk away from this text this morning as we leave this gathering. My hope is that you will see this sign of Jesus and believe. After all, that is the goal of John's gospel, that we would believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Let's pray and we'll begin walking through the text together this morning. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us there. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that Jesus turns death from an executioner into a gardener. We thank you that Christians aren't simply laid to rest, but that we are planted. made ready to rise once more upon your return to make all things new. Lord, we thank you for this message of hope, this picture of our conversion, this summons to repentance, this forecast of future glory. We pray that you would help us to see and savor Jesus as he has revealed in this passage this morning. We ask it in his name. Amen. To give you a little context, as we've seen from these these signs that Jesus has been performing, all of them have provoked some animus from his detractors, especially the religious leaders. Last week we saw when they were confronted with a man who was blind from birth, and Jesus healed him. They, They didn't immediately repent and believe. Instead, they tried to dismiss the claims of Jesus. They attempted to expose him as a fraud, undermine him. They said, he's a sinner. He's not from God. And at the end of the chapter, we have that line from Jesus, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see. And that those who do see, that is think they see, will become blind. And so the trajectory of the passage is this. The blind man begins not seeing physically at all. Jesus gives him his physical sight. And by the end of the chapter, we see him seeing spiritually. As he announces, I believe, Lord, and worships Jesus. That is juxtaposed, It's set aside the mounting disbelief of the Pharisees. They are not willing to believe in Jesus. And they become more and more entrenched in their blindness. They become more and more hostile to Christ. And this this has been the pattern, right? At the end of John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to try and kill him. In chapter 10 he says, I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. And The Jewish establishment is divided and some of them say that he has a demon. Then he says in verse 30 of chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And we read in verse 31, again the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. We get the explanation as to why in verse 33, for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus doesn't back off of his claims though. In verse 39, we find once more, they were trying again to seize Jesus, but he eluded their grasp. Or They're trying to arrest him so that they might punish him for making these blasphemous claims. And yet, like a skilled NFL running back, he just eludes their grasp. I don't know what that looks like, but he'll lose their grasp. He is a wanted man, and so the end of chapter 10 has Jesus and his disciples leaving the region that they are in and going elsewhere, because the tension has risen to a a fever pitch. It's not safe for them to be there anymore. There are wanted posters up, and that's the context into which we step as we come to verse 1. Chapter 11. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Martha was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus Lord, The one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered, if anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. And then the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go also so that we may die with him. Quick sidebar here. I love Thomas's attitude. We often refer to Thomas as the doubter. Doubting Thomas is the moniker. But here we have Thomas the courageous. They're Going back to a region where Jesus was about to be stoned, the wanted posters are up. They're all like, I don't think it's a great idea to go back into the hot zone. And Thomas says, no, we're ready to go. I'm ready to follow you anywhere, Jesus. Let us go so that we might die with our Lord. It's Courageous, and it's, it's wonderful, and it's a shame that we remember him as the doubter. It's a shame that we remember figures like Peter as the denier. Or even when Christ is taken to the cross, we could give all of the disciples the moniker of deserters. In fact, we could probably be identified this way. But one of the things I I love about Jesus is that he loves us in the midst of our imperfections. He restores Peter after his denials. He comes to Thomas when he doubts later and places his fingers in his wounds. Jesus never identifies even the doubters and the deniers and the deserters among us as such. Instead, he simply calls us his beloved. He's committed to us in such a way that even when we are stumbling in sin, he's not tisk tisking us and thrusting his finger into our faces. How could you? Instead, he patiently loves us. Calls us to walk with him. It's an incredible thing how Jesus loves those who put their faith in him. And I just enjoy how courageous Thomas is here. The story, though, is is interesting, and that's what's primary. What exactly is going on? We've established that that Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus is not just some stranger to Jesus, right? Jesus, I mean, it doesn't really matter, typically. Jesus heals strangers. The royal official's son, he heals with a word from a distance. The man at the pool at Bethesda, he heals. The man born blind from birth, healed. Healing is is no problem for Jesus. He's happy to heal strangers. And in Lazarus' case, he's sick. And Mary and Martha send to Jesus and we we read about this intensity of affection that Jesus has for Lazarus specifically and this family generally. Look at verse 3. They send to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. And so if he is willing to heal and to help and to aid strangers, how much more is he going to care for one of his siblings? And so when Jesus hears this, what we expect from what we know about Jesus is for him to heal Lazarus immediately. expect to read something like, so when Jesus heard this, he said, go. Lazarus will be well. What we expect, maybe he, he teleports to Lazarus' side and puts his hand on him and, set, and tells the fever to leave him. We expect maybe even for, for him to run day and night immediately to Lazarus so that he might make him well. But that's not at all what Jesus does. Jesus' response is surprising. Look at it in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And then here's the, the inference. So, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed two more days in the place where he was. This is unexpected. Jesus stays where he's at and allows Lazarus to die because he loves Mary and Martha. How how is that loving, we think? See, it's loving because God always gives us what we most need. And what Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the disciples most need is the glory of God. It's to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus tells us that in verse 4, right? This sickness will not end in death. He says that and then later tells him Lazarus is dead. And they're like, what? But is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. The purpose of Lazarus' death is the revealing of the glory of God. And because Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, He lets Lazarus die because the vision of the glory of God they are going to get on the other side of suffering far outweighs any comfort they would have gained by his immediate healing. God is after what is best for them. And God's glory always outweighs suffering. Always makes suffering worth it. I love what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. God is using suffering, using affliction to produce glory. Therefore, we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. God is always after what is going to benefit us most in the long term, into eternity. And all too often, we put our fingers on that which is transient, on that which is right now. But Paul knows what it is to believe in James chapter 1. To consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. Because we know that ultimately they are producing in us a maturity, a Christ-likeness that is worth far more than expiring comforts. I I don't want to... I want you to get it wrong. Paul did not write these words that our light momentary affliction is producing for us an incomparable eternal weight of glory casually. Paul did not write those words as someone who was unacquainted with suffering. Indeed, Paul wrote those words as someone who had been shipwrecked multiple times, starved, imprisoned, beaten, stoned. As one who was given a thorn in the flesh as a messenger from Satan and had cried out to God, take it from me. And God said, no. Take it from me. And God said, no. Take it from me. Three times. And God said, no, no, no. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul knew what it was to suffer. He didn't know all the reasons for his suffering. And yet, he trusted that God was at work in his suffering producing Glory, at work in his suffering for his own good. Couldn't couldn't see all the answers. But he trusted the God who ordained his suffering. Often use this illustration. It just helps these kind of things come home to me. It was like a parent sitting. In the evening after putting the kids to bed, one of the children come down say, Daddy, there's a monster under my bed. He's in there. And the parent, assuming he's not like major pain, I don't know if you all ever saw that movie, where he like rolls in and pulls his gun out and just shoots in the closet. He's like, if he's in there, he ain't happy. And the kid's like, that's cool, and goes back to bed. Most of you probably don't do that. I don't do that. What, what happens in those situations is you can, you can sit there as a father and say, there's, no, well, there's not really any such thing as monsters. They, they don't exist. What, what you heard was, and we live in an old house and so it creaks and crawls and try to you know, work through all these things. Probably not going to really satisfy the child. and Give them all the explanation and say, alright, now go back upstairs, go into the darkness, go back into your bed and maybe they'll listen but they're probably going to be a little bit hesitant. What's Far more effective is if father takes the hand of the child and walks into the darkness with him. And what's happening in that moment is the child might not have all the answers, might not understand all the variables, but the child understands who his father is. See, what his greatest need in his moment of fear is not all the answers, but the presence of one whose character he trusts. Friends, likewise, in our trials, our greatest need is not to have all the answers about why. Our greatest need is for the presence of our Father. When you are walking through suffering, it's important Not to lean back and constantly ask, Why? But instead, to remember who. Remember who God is. That He's for your good. And that indeed, He's going to bring glory out of it. God ordains your suffering for your good and for His glory. He can turn the most hopeless of circumstances into the most beautiful. This is what he will do with Lazarus. And so he lets Lazarus die. And of course, as he goes two days later to return to the region where he's wanted, he is met by both Mary and Martha at different times. And we're actually going to consider Mary's response to Jesus, even though she comes second, first. Look with me at verse 28, verse 28 of chapter 11. Having said this, Martha went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved, angered in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who had opened, opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Why does Jesus weep? He knows he's going to raise Lazarus up from the dead. So why the tears? Two reasons. First is that death stings death stings death is a big deal it is a reminder of the judgment of god against sin it preaches to all of us that our days are numbered friends when it comes to death we ought not to distract ourselves from the reality of our own mortality We ought not pretend like it's no big deal. We should look at death and mourn over what our sin has brought about. If you don't think death is a big deal here, just think about if it was your own loved one who had passed away. Think of your own death. Not a big deal. God is just going to raise me up. Oh, friend, we ought not approach death so tritely. It's a big deal. Death hurts. And Jesus, even though he knows the end, is not indifferent to the pain of death. He knows it's a sting he sympathizes with his people it's the second reason he he knows that death is a big deal that it stings and he sympathizes with his people he sympathizes with those who mourn over the loss of a loved one he kisses the forehead of the mother who has lost a child in infancy hugs the child who has lost a parent. He holds the hand of the Christian lying in his bed, body riddled with cancer, crying out to die. Jesus is not indifferent to suffering. He's well acquainted with it. And he sympathizes with us in our suffering. So that oftentimes we find in the cellar of affliction, God's sweetest wines. That's why oftentimes when life is most bitter, we find Jesus to be most sweet. Because he has promised to be with us always. We see him here entering into the suffering. Mary and Martha those who are mourning Lazarus. Friends, as Christians, we believe that death is unnatural. That it is not part of the world as God made it. But a consequence of sin. Therefore, we do not think that maturity is learning to accept death. But rather, learning to trust that Christ will raise us out of it. And so we want to take an approach to death that is both serious and yet at the same time hopeful. We do not mourn over death as those without any hope, but as those who know the character of our God who has ordained all that is. As those who know our God is present with us in our suffering. Jesus suffers together here as he weeps with Mary as one who knows just what it is to suffer, as the one who will suffer for us. he's, He's going to raise Lazarus up in just a minute What I want you to see is how some people respond to him after he does. Look at at verse 46. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Their response? At the raising of Lazarus from the dead is not to believe in Jesus, but to protect their own social interests they realize what what so many of us do not. You can't just have Jesus around and go about life as usual. He's not just some auxiliary component to reality. Indeed, if He is who He says He is, it changes everything. Everything. I and mean, do you understand the claims of Jesus? He's claim number one, right? I am God. Right? He, he tells us, you need to repent of your sin, your way of looking at reality, and you need to follow me. And now you need to understand everything you thought about life. You need to think my thoughts after me. You need to live your life the way I have laid out. You need to believe in me instead of yourself. These claims were hard then and they are hard now. All of us, apart from a work of God the Holy Spirit, will respond in a way very similar to the Pharisees. We hear Jesus say, repent of your sin and follow me, and we come up with something like, No. I like my sin. I like my life. I'm never giving it up. I'll kill you before that happens. And some of you are going, well, maybe I'm not that intense in my rejection of the Lord Jesus. If if I saw a miracle, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. This text is testimony to that fact. These people saw Jesus performing these signs. They saw him in front of their faces and they did not believe. If I had more more evidence, I would believe. I don't think that's true. There are mountains of evidence for the historicity of the resurrection. And other explanations are are downright farcical. Jesus really did get up from the dead. And that means that we ought to take his claims seriously. He is who he said he was. You should believe it. You should want to believe it said this last week when the Pharisees were staring at the man born blind and looking past him to try and find a way to discredit Jesus. But oftentimes we don't just hold up the arguments and make judgments objectively. But more often than not, we decide we want to believe something and then find arguments to support that. And the same is true here. Where your heart is, there your arguments will be also. And so, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, I implore you, ask God to give you a new heart. Call out to Him, I want to believe, help my unbelief. Because the only thing that will cause you to come to Jesus is a miracle. You must be born again. The Pharisees understood this. And so they arranged, ultimately, for the killing of Jesus. He went to the cross. Indeed, they intended the crucifixion of Jesus for evil, and God intended it for good. Jesus went to the cross and suffered the penalty for the sins of all of his people the full just wrath of God towards your wrongdoing and mine. Think about how much you hate injustice and sin. And then think about how much a perfectly holy and good and just God hates injustice and sin. He kindled his wrath towards sin. His right response to evil and he poured it out on Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You and I deserve in eternity under God's wrath. And yet, And yet, in Christ, God gives to us the opposite of what we deserve. He Gives us all the blessing that is due to Jesus. That's what grace is. That's why we call it amazing. Because we can't earn it, we can't take hold of it, we can only receive it. We serve a God who is no stranger to suffering. Jesus stepped out of heaven and took on flesh so that he could live the life we should have lived, and die the death that we deserve to die, and raise again from the dead so that those who have faith in him might enjoy eternal life. Well, friend, put your faith in Jesus, and you will see miracles, just like Martha does. Let's go back to verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus already had been in the tomb four days, Four days here is significant. There was this rabbinic belief that your soul kind of hung out above your body for at least three days. And then when you started to rot and decompose, the soul was like, that's gross, and just took off, okay? So there's this idea that inside of three days, it could reenter. And so what we need to see here, the reason that John brings our attention to it, is because he wants us to know Lazarus is not just a little dead, a la Princess Bride. He's very dead. He's dead, dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, We've heard this before. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But look what she adds. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. so, So Martha interprets when Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again, that it's something similar to, I'm sorry for your loss. Jews believed in a general resurrection of the dead, the righteous to life everlasting, and the unrighteous to eternal torment. They believed in the general resurrection at the end of time. And so when, when, when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, she's like, I know. General resurrection, got it. And Jesus he says, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm saying here. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the King, the Son of God who comes into the world. Jesus says, This is Mary, I'm going to, to move your focus on the general resurrection, and I'm going to, to put it on me specifically. Don't put your hope for Lazarus in that, that great day when God will raise the dead. Put your hope in me right now. I am the resurrection and the life. And, and he holds out to her these two amazing truths. One is that the person who trusts in Jesus has eternal life right now, already. The other is that the person who trusts in Jesus will be raised from the dead then. We who trust in Christ will die physically, continue on metaphysically, and then be resurrected bodily. Did you ever think about that you have eternal life right now? That God the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, indwells you right now? That you are alive, and though your body will die, you will leave this flesh and be present with the Lord your God in heaven. Where you'll wait for that final day when He gives you a new body and turns earth into heaven. It's Incredible. Did you ever think about how crucial bodily resurrection is to our faith? We're not promised some ethereal existence, Tom and Jerry with harps on clouds kind of deal. Y'all don't know Tom and Jerry anymore. i got to come up with something else. We were promised a physical reality, a new heavens and a new earth that's very similar to this one, only glorified, glorified bodies, glorified mountains, glorified beaches, glorified fields, glorified valleys. There's going to be a whole lot of adventure to be had when Jesus returns and gives us glorified resurrection bodies. What a wonderful promise this is. And he says, Do you believe this? And she says, Jesus, she this great confession. Yes, I believe you're the King, the Son of God who comes into the world. You can almost hear Jesus going, Good. Now watch this. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again. Deeply moved is not a great translation here. You probably have a footnote that says, or angry. I think anger is better. Uh, I love Tim Keller translate this, quaking with rage. Jesus, angry, came to the tomb. Angry at sin, angry at death, comes, and he's going to do something about it. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone. Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's he's been dead four days. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but Because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in Jesus. The raising of Lazarus from the dead gives us a wonderful picture of what happens at conversion. Jesus speaks his word and the dead come to life. It summons us to repentance. This is the God who is and who raises the dead. Therefore, we ought to put our faith and our confidence in him. Jesus' raising of Lazarus gives us a pale preview of the resurrection that is to come. The end of all those who have trusted in Christ is life, bodily, not death. I say it's a pale anticipation of what is to come because, you see, Lazarus is raised, but he dies again. So we don't share in a resurrection like Lazarus'. We will share in a resurrection like Jesus, who is raised to live Forevermore. Who rules on the throne of the universe right now. We will share in an eternal resurrection. Because we believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life. He has promised to those who follow him eternal life. He has promised to those who follow him resurrection life. And he is good at keeping his word. The dying Christ secured for us life eternal and a resurrection. And the risen Christ is going to see that we get what was promised. So, how does God redeem suffering? He turns it into glory. Lazarus' death didn't make sense And then it did. The cross didn't make sense. On Friday, Jesus was dead. On Saturday, the grave was full. It didn't make sense. But then on Sunday morning, glory. Your suffering may not make sense. You might go months and years. I don't have answers for the suffering. It doesn't make sense. But as you press in and trust Christ, as you trust God, there will come a day where you'll go, it makes perfect sense. Glory. Your suffering might not make sense now, but it will then. There is a resurrection coming. God will swallow up all of your suffering with glory. In Christ, even the grimmest sights and circumstances, death and the grave, are not able to finally disguise the goodness of God to all those who believe in Jesus. Indeed, He will deliver all of God's children from all of our trials, even that last and greatest trial of death. Chelsea and I have four children, and the fifth one is on the way. And it's always this strange thing. You get pregnant, and then immediately you start looking forward to the delivery. And labor, as some of you know, is not fun. It's fine for me. Nothing bad happens to me. I'm usually able to eat and, you know, Hold Chelsea's hand while she struggles a little bit. But labor is full of pain and straining and hardship. And then when it's finally over, glory. I always ask the question, or used to ask the question, why on earth... Would a woman, after having experienced labor the first time, have a second child? And the answer is, when she beholds the face of that child, it is so thrilling, it is so satisfying, that it makes the suffering totally worth it. The glory justifies the suffering. Friends, likewise, when we behold the face of our God and King, it is going to be so thrilling that we will look at all of our suffering and we will say, totally worth it. This God, this glory justifies all of my suffering. He's my Redeemer. He's good. He's worthy of my praise. Friends, we serve the God who redeems suffering and who raises the dead. Let us rejoice together that the tomb is empty, that the throne is occupied, and that the King is returning. Let's praise God that Jesus did not say on the cross, I am finished, but it is finished. Because he was just getting started. And friends, Jesus is not finished producing glory from suffering yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom and for your word. We thank you for your character, thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and grace to sinners like us. How can it be that Jesus, our God, would die for us? Indeed, it is amazing grace. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.